From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A critical water source for Colorado reaches a critical level. We'll check in on Lake Powell in the face of climate change. Then, these days, escaping to a virtual world might feel like a dream come true. An architect's now building in the metaverse, including school campuses. The objective is to look at how education can change when you get to use these environments in a three-dimensional way, either on VR glasses or on a screen or on your phone or in augmented reality. And later, the success story of Mawa McQueen is one of perseverance and a love of cooking. There's no glory. You're not going to be a millionaire. Nobody's going to recognize you. You need to do it for yourself because that's your calling. Plus a baton pass from Joanne Allen. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. After 20 years of climate change-driven drought, Lake Powell dropped below a critical threshold for the first time this week. Lake Powell is on the Utah-Arizona border. It's the second largest reservoir in the U.S., and it's a key part of the Colorado River water supply system. It's mostly fed by snowmelt from Colorado's Rocky Mountains, and the reservoir supplies energy and water to millions in the West. CPR climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis joins us now. Hey, Michael. Hi, Nathan. Lake Powell dropped to its lowest level on record this past summer and has continued to dry up. Tell us what's happening now. Yeah, uh, a few years ago, when it was clear that the drought wasn't going away and, and was only getting worse, some of the states that share the Colorado River got together and agreed on a plan. That plan was to keep more water in Lake Powell to try and keep it above 3,525 feet above sea level. That number is important because it creates a 35-foot buffer of water before the reservoir hits a point known as Deadpool, where it can no longer produce energy. So how close is Lake Powell to that level? The reservoir actually fell below that critical number of 3,525 feet for the very first time this week. So that protective buffer of water is shrinking, which threatens the reservoir's ability to produce hydropower. How does Lake Powell create energy? The dam that holds in the water at Lake Powell, which is Glen Canyon Dam, has turbines. And water passes through those turbines and spins them to make electricity. But there has to be enough water in the reservoir for that to happen. So there's real concern that as Lake Powell continues to dry up, there won't be enough water to keep that process going. And millions of people use this power that's generated, including folks in Colorado. So what steps have been taken to shore up water supplies in the reservoir? As Powell quickly started dropping to that important threshold, the federal government took emergency action for the first time in the summer and fall of last year. And they sent water from other reservoirs into the Colorado River, which feeds Lake Powell. And so that extra water helped prop Powell back up. 
So Blue Mesa Reservoir outside of Gunnison, Colorado, actually lost about eight feet of water in that process. People were forced to take their boats out of the water early, and the local marina had to close up shop for the season weeks early. Did that extra water end up helping Lake Powell at all? In the end, those releases didn't prevent water levels from dropping below that critical number, but officials with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation say the additional release did add about six feet of water to Powell, and that any extra buffer of water right now is helpful when it comes to protecting Powell's ability to produce energy. They also say that once the snow in Colorado and other states start to melt and run back into the river, that'll prop Powell back up in the spring. So the drop is temporary. But if there's a chance Powell, but there's a chance Powell will drop below this number again in August. Michael, why is all of this happening now? Yeah, so 2021 was the second driest year on record for the Colorado River Basin, and 2020 was bad too. And unfortunately, federal forecasts predict that less than 70% of what's normal will flow into Lake Powell this year. Back-to-back dry years have hit the Colorado River before, but back then, reservoirs like Lake Powell were full of water. So we're now 20 years into a mega drought, which essentially means a decades-long drought, and those reservoirs have not gotten a chance to catch back up. So now Lake Powell is hitting these critically low levels. Powell's actually currently less than 25% full. And this ongoing drought also means the dry soil is going to soak up a lot of that snow as it melts and a lot of that water before it actually reaches rivers and lakes. What comes next? Officials say it's likely emergency water releases to Lake Powell from reservoirs like Blue Mesa outside of Gunnison could likely happen again this summer. Colorado Water Conservation Board Director Becky Mitchell says That shows why Colorado and other states are working on a plan to keep more water in Lake Powell in the future. She says that plan will mean that states will have a unified and coordinated action plan in place so that the federal emergency action isn't needed in the years to come. And a draft of that plan is expected in the spring. The states are also continuing to look into the possibility of paying farmers and ranchers and other Colorado River users for their water and they would add that to Lake Powell instead of using it. Mitchell says Colorado is still studying this idea, and that under that drought agreement from a few years ago, all four states upstream of the Colorado River have to take a unified position on whether or not to move forward with this idea. And Mitchell said next steps on that could be announced in the fall. All right. Thanks very much, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Michael Elizabeth Sackis is a CPR climate and environment reporter. She spoke with us about Lake Powell, which has hit a critically low threshold for the first time. When we come back, living life in the virtual world of a metaverse. It could happen sooner than you think. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's no doubt crime is rising in Colorado and has been rising since before the pandemic. New data confirms that. That's not normal. We're, we're trending in the wrong direction. Crime is up in nearly all categories and just keeps going up. How much is it rising and where? Why? And what are politicians doing about it? The facts and what they mean. Read CPR series on crime in Colorado at CPR.org and listen to more on Purplish everywhere you get your podcasts. 
If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that interacting with each other through Zoom meetings and online spaces is possible. So much so that in the not-too-distant future, we all might be spending hours or days in virtual reality. Like in the book-turned-movie Ready Player One, where the world is linked up to the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. But before that fully immersive space can exist, it needs to be built piece by piece. That's what's happening right now in the metaverse. Gamers, techies, and even real-world architects are creating environments we'll one day be able to visit virtually. One of those architects is Allison Agley. She owns Alley & Shea Property Design in Aspen. Allison, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Nathan. The metaverse is still such a foreign concept to people, me included. I think we envision like a virtual space where we use VR glasses and enter another dimension of sorts with limitless possibilities. Is that the metaverse you're working in? Well, first I'm going to go step backwards for a second. And um, I think one of the best ways to think about the metaverse is to liken it kind of to when we first got the internet. So on the internet, there's lots of different web pages and a protocol so that different web browsers will work and we can access those web pages. Right now, the metaverse is that overarching space, just like the internet is, and the different virtual worlds inside of the metaverse are like the web pages for us. Um, I think that helps people understand that the metaverse is a really broad term and the virtual worlds are the places that we're going to get to interact. So to be clear, you're working in this massive thing called the metaverse, but within that, you're working in a space called the sandbox. And within that, you're working for a company called Emerald Rockets and you're designing buildings for them. Is that right? Exactly. We are basically taking our same process that we would use with a client uh, here in real life, and we are going through a project for the first time in the sandbox on what is one of the largest size lots. It's a 24 by 24. And to put that in perspective, it's about equivalent to in real life, 1,300 acres. So 24 by 24, are these called blocks or, or, or lots or what do you call them? A one by one is a piece of land in the sandbox. And the lots start at one by one. There's three by threes and it goes up to 24 by 24. I think there's four different sizes. And so the space you're working in within the sandbox is, is pretty large, yeah? Yeah, so that's um, what was fun when I... Did our first Zoom call with Emerald Rockets, you know, they were like, great, let's start building. And I, I was like, well, hold on, we need to uh, we need to do some urban planning. Basically, the lot is so large. We have to have a plan. We're, we're going to be able to build thousands of buildings on, on this. And 
Emerald Rocket's um, focus is uh, to build a campus-like environment for education in virtual worlds. And so you're building essentially campus buildings for Emerald Rockets. Yes. And, and Emerald Rockets won't necessarily be doing the curriculum. The curriculum could come from multiple different places. And kind of the objective is to look at how education can change when you get to use these environments. So obviously for COVID, we've all learned how to deal with Zoom. I liken this to this is going to be like the next level of us not interacting in two dimensions on a screen, but we'll be acting in a three-dimensional way together, either on VR glasses or on a screen or on your phone or in augmented reality. So that means you're using your architectural skills to design buildings and sidewalks and placing of things like that, right? Exactly. And then we're expanding to think of different types of games we can build that are educational and different environments. So say you wanted to learn about a period of time in history, you could potentially build an environment, whether it's looking back at the pyramids being built or something that where you could, your little avatar could walk around and see the different sides of it and see how they were potentially built and and really experience history immersively instead of sitting and staring at a screen or looking at a book or hearing a lecture. What do these buildings look like that you're creating? Do they look like something that maybe somebody who plays computer games could understand? I guess give us a description of, of what you're building and how they look. Well, what's interesting about that is each virtual world has a different look and feel. So each metaverse has its own kind of look that is partially because of the um, technology that each one is built on. All of it's a little bit different at this point. So your avatar in the sandbox is very blocky looking, but if your avatar were, and this will be able to happen, when your avatar is able to go from the sandbox potentially to another virtual world, it's blocky edges will get like smoothed out. You'll still be wearing the same outfit and your avatar can potentially take things from one virtual world to the next eventually, but the buildings all look different. So in in some of the architecture, it's very literal. Um, In the sandbox, they have some that are already built that have bricks and look like very traditional buildings. But for Emerald Rockets, when they gave us our program and scope and what they wanted done, they were like, build things that can't happen in real life. You know, like this is your chance to do whatever you want. (laughs) And that's a little daunting. (laughs) And are you doing that? Uh, We're starting to. So just like you would think of in a HOA, we're, we're creating design guidelines so that because I'm not going to be able to obviously be building every building. So we have a large team of people that that will be building for us. So um, we create design briefs for each type of building, and then they're able to go to a, a kind of design guide document that helps to outline what they can and can't do so that everything within 
are 24 by 24 makes visual sense. You know you're on the Emerald Rocket site. For someone my age who who played SimCity when I was younger, it seems very much like that. You're creating this civilization and, and all that goes with it from scratch. Totally. Um, the Sims is, that is an early virtual world. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because you know, one of the things that is allowing this to go further this time and the, why the, this is ke- the whole metaverse thing is so uh, popular right now is that we've been able to add with, with the advent of cryptocurrency becoming more prevalent that was a way to add currency and an economy to basically something like the Sims. So when you would go into the Sims, you were in there just, you know, moving things around and building a house. But what if you went to work in the Sims and you actually got paid? So that's where this kind of next level economy is coming because we can pay people through these new currencies and ways of transmitting wealth. And you're paid in cryptocurrency to do these things right now, yeah? Yeah. And that was kind of exciting because I would say about, I don't know, three months ago, I mean, I had always purchased cryptocurrency and and, and learned to move it around and do different things. But I had kind of set out a goal of within the next 12 months, I want to do something where I'm paid in cryptocurrency. And that happened. So Emerald Rockets pays me in cryptocurrency. I want to get back to the school you're constructing in the metaverse. When you're building something, is the sky truly the limit or or are there funding or material constraints? Uh, you mentioned earlier perhaps building the pyramids for students to explore. I mean, in reality, of course, the pyramids are huge and used a lot of material. Um, yes. That, so we're working and learning as we go along. And you're right, different pieces of architecture inside the different virtual worlds. And they all have, you know, there's a sandbox, there's Decentraland, and there's many different environments. They all have different kind of sets of how much things cost. And when you build something in the sandbox and it's not on the land yet, it's called an asset. And each asset gets minted like an NFT would. So you're correct in that it does cost money to build like it would in real life, I guess. We're all kind of learning how to budget for that and what the numbers are, because truthfully, I can't even wrap my head around it yet. And I want to note an NFT is a non-fungible token, and it's created kind of like cryptocurrency, but with its own electronic signature, meaning it's unique and can't be traded or exchanged. You're hearing of all these famous people buying NFTs. Uh, this is so new and so foreign to many people, me included, you've even said yourself you're having trouble wrapping your head around this. It just seems so beyond what we understand when we're interacting with a digital space these days. Um, you know, I've always been interested in technology and following things. And I would say how I got interested in this to begin with was not, I my intent wasn't initially to design in the virtual world. What I really got interested in, first of all, was if we're going to be spending a good portion of our day, potentially, in the metaverse, going between different virtual worlds, 
what does that do to how you spend the rest of your day in real life? And how does that change where you live or how we live together? And then also, obviously, how the importance of getting outside and getting exercise becomes even more exponential if we're potentially spending more time inside in a computer environment. So essentially, it's like blending reality with the metaverse, and you're trying to find a link between the two. Does that come out in, let's say, the projects that you may potentially build in reality uh, with your architectural firm? Uh, for certain. I, I would love to just keep exploring this topic. I, now I feel super fortunate that I'm getting to explore it with Emerald Rockets, because in our campus environment, we've talked about creating different things that... And if the, I don't know if this is going off in too strange of a direction, but like in a Pokemon Go sort of way, that there are things that happen that could lead you on a hike. Oh. And you could still be gathering points or information or something that encourages you to go on the hike so that you're not just inside. So how do we make sure that we're using it for good as much as humanly possible? You know, the augmented reality of uh, Pokemon Go, where that craze was a couple of years ago, you would see people with their phones walking out into a field, gathering Pokemon. You're saying that the projects that you're working on or this type of metaverse would essentially possibly have that type of interaction. Yeah. So you don't have to think of this next step into the metaverse as just being in the virtual reality. We're also going to have to learn how to integrate it into our real lives. And then we're also, there's different tools that will be kind of a crossover between the two that could incentivize people to, to learn more things and get more exercise and visit more places because we're using incentives that we're building inside of the virtual space. When do you think the everyday Colorado will begin to experience the metaverse in, in kind of a pure form? I mean, as a fully immersive thing, is that five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I think it's closer to five to seven years where we are all have our phone and we have either a headset or glasses. What is happening in this space is if you look back at the internet starting and you look from like 1995 to 2005, a lot of stuff was able to happen. They're projecting that this will all happen, integration and people picking up and, and starting to use this technology, it'll happen at like double the speed. So quickly, much quicker than let's say the introduction of the internet, like you said. Yes. And that's a factor of a, a few things. You know, we're all more used to technology, obviously, like I have a 15 year old daughter. She was born with technology, her brain will jump from being in reality to being in a virtual world so much more easily than say you or I, Nathan, because right. just because of our age and how, how and when we grew up. But then also I find that this space is so collaborative. So in the past where companies would keep intellectual property very kind of close to the best in all of this learning about the metaverse and virtual worlds, I mean, if you direct message anyone on Discord or Twitter, or any of these avenues, they come right back to you with information instantly. Allison, I could 
speak with you for so much longer about this topic, but we have to end it here. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Allison Agley is an architect from Aspen. Her company, Ally and Shea, is developing a virtual university campus for Emerald Rockets, a company working within the sandbox, a space inside the metaverse. When we come back, we'll step inside Mawa's kitchen and meet a master chef whose passion for cooking equals hard-earned success. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the Colorado high country, the brown snowshoe hare turns white in winter. Named for its extra-large fur-bottomed hind feet, the snowshoe hare can clear 12 feet in a single jump and moves easily in Colorado's mountains, forests, and alpine tundra. Although a hare may look like a large, rangy rabbit with extra-long ears and legs, it is a separate species. Rabbits are born hairless and blind and need their mothers for two months. Baby hares enter the world with eyes open in full fur and are ready to hop in a couple of hours. Around the world, hares are mostly nocturnal and shy, but come mating season, they engage in a crazy courtship. They'll chase each other for miles, stop, leap over each other, box, kick, hit, hiss, and sometimes urinate on each other midair, all of which explain the old expression, mad as a March hare. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Coble Urban and Mountain Communities. There's a small restaurant tucked away in a nondescript business park across from the Aspen Airport in western Colorado. From the outside, it's hard to even know you're at the right place. But inside, the smell of freshly cooked food and sounds of lively conversation fill the air. You found Mawa's Kitchen, one of the hottest restaurants in Aspen, and its chef, Mama McQueen, she's a finalist for the 2022 James Beard Award Best Chef Mountain. Dressed in a short-sleeved gray chef's jacket, Mawa is in her element. Mawa's Kitchen and her other two companies, the Crepe Shack and Mawa's Grain-Free Nola, are the only black-owned businesses in Aspen. So you drove today? Yeah, I drove. Oh, Sitting us down in the middle of her crowded restaurant, her choice, since she loves seeing her customers eating yuca fries, ahi tuna niçoise, and her signature burger made with pickled zucchini, aged white cheddar, and herb remoulade. She smiles as she looks around, taking in the scene. So you are an amazing entrepreneur, right? Thank you, thank you. But I want to get way back to the beginning. Tell me where it all began, back in the Ivory Coast, right? Yes, it started, yeah, I was born there, in Ivory Coast, and uh, I moved to Paris when I was 12. And that's where I say my adventure began. Since the Ivory Coast is a French colony, it was very easy for Mawa and her family to immigrate there. We were living in the suburb of Paris, and um, it was challenging. <laughs> what do you mean by challenging? Tell it's me what you mean. challenging because, you know, every time you say, oh, you live in Paris, people think, they're, they're like, oh my God, it's so beautiful, so romantic. And I'm like, honey, the suburb of Paris is a ghetto. So <laughs> I had to tell people that. You don't have that much opportunity. 
and for people back in the day for people like me it was okay housekeeping uh, nurses you know work in the office but you know you need to be like the assistant or the cleaning lady so there's a lot of things that was very stereotyped in France and um, I didn't like that I was watching TV and all the show that I, I saw black people they were American the Cosby show you know um, you love the Cosby show honey I live on a Cosby show <laughs> me Claire, too I love that show Claire Extable I'm like I'm gonna be like her I'm gonna speak different language I'm gonna have a beautiful house you know and, and so, so that was kind of the, the beginning to be like yes. I wanna I wanna go to America yes that was that was it for me like the Cosby show was it I say I say I'm gonna go to America because that's the only time I can find black people my mom said to me you going what girl he can't even speak French. And I suck at school. And you want to go to America. I'm a type of person, when you tell me I can, I will. I, will, I wish you would have said you suck at school, so I'll do better. <laughs> did did she say you sucked at cooking? <laughs> no, no, no. So, so for us, for me uh, and, and my culture, uh, it's a normal thing, you know, I had 10 brothers and sisters and we were living in, in two-bedroom apartment, okay, and my parents were working and I had to take care of my brother and sister. And that involved cooking, cleaning, dressing, mending, you name it, she had to do it for her 10 brothers and sisters. One time I think they wanted to send um, the social service to my mom because they thought that that was a little abusive, but for us it wasn't, and I'm like, in the social service work because they felt like all I was doing was too much and I didn't see it I didn't feel it unless someone tell you that this is wrong you know you know because you were doing too much you were cooking and cleaning and taking care of the kids and, and, and but this is what you need to do this is my culture okay and I never once felt like this is the way I was contributing to where I am you know, when people leave the country and they come to another country, they try to make it and there's no, we don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I need to live my life. I mean, what life? I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for my parents who made sacrifice. And they have to work in order for me. So all I had to do is to take care of the house. And I was very proud of it. Um, so, I mean, today I understand that it's, things change, but back in the day, back in the day, you know, uh, that was the norm for us. Eventually, Mawa turned cooking for her family into a ticket to cooking school, where her teacher thought her skills were something to be nurtured and improved. The headmaster thought that I deserve better than be a statistic. Do you understand? Be, you know, I could work at a children cantina, you know, like that's where my fate would have been. A cafeteria worker. But Mawa knew she could do better and so did the headmaster. Mawa ended up at a prestigious school for chefs, but it wasn't the ticket to success that she had hoped for because of her race. I did the schooling. I, I'm like, no, I'm going to do this. My first clue, everybody went to a five-star to train. I went to a three-star. Mm. But that's not what the school was about. It's a five-star, five-diamond, you know, very high-end establishment. Oh. You know, I didn't, it, it didn't bother me. Uh, 
Well, was that because you didn't feel you were good enough, or just because you didn't think that you could do a five-star? What was no, it? because they didn't allow me to go to a five-star. You know, your work experience is chosen. They have a list of... And I went to... They said, okay, you go here. Everybody... You don't choose where you go. They place you. And I was like, so everybody went to a five-star? And I'm... It didn't even register. It's after... So we finished school and a reality check starts. She needed to get to America, but she didn't know English at the time. So Mawa decided England was the place to go. Leaving her family in France, armed with her chef's degree, she wasn't cooking in England, but becoming an established restaurant manager, working for a hotel restaurant in London. Her lucky break to America came in a visa lottery she just happened to win. And her first job in the U.S. was in Kennebunkport, Maine. I couldn't even point out where Kennebunkport was. Now I wake up in the morning, I'm like, where's all the black people? Zero. None. <laughs> but nonetheless, Mawa saw her time in Maine as amazing. She got to know former President George H.W. Bush, famous for his home there. 2002 was magical for me because being there, everything that people said I couldn't do. I was working in a five-star, five-diamond. I was friends with the president. I mean, if you arrive, what else can I want? Winters in Maine were tough on Mawa with the deep freeze and bitter snowstorms, so through a seasonal exchange, her bosses asked her where she wanted to winter. And once again, as TV had done for so many years, it gave her an idea. I was watching The Young and Restless. The soap opera? Yes. They had a romantic scene in Aspen. And I thought, I'm going to Aspen. French Alp, I don't like it. It's not great. <laughs> you know how TV, I, li- I live my life for TV. Really, it was my escape. There's nothing else. I got out of that, everybody's in the ghetto. That was my escape. And and as a joke, I said to my boss, why don't I go ski in Aspen like all the bougie people? It's like, yes, I will make it happen. And I'm like, you must be kidding me. I end up in, at the little nail in Aspen, Colorado. Again, another magical thing. I was serving, I mean, the 1%. And people see me, people acknowledge me, people love me. Something I could have never even, even though, you know, I was a server, you know? I didn't experience any racism. I didn't experience any... The experience was so such a humbling and wonderful experience that I'm like, oh, I'm coming back. I don't mind doing summer, winter, summer, winter. And I did that for five years. And uh, I decided I'm going to stay in Aspen. Flash forward now a number of years, after a nudge from a wealthy woman she cooked Christmas dinner for, Mawa opened Mawa's Kitchen, initially as a catering company for events and even in-flight dining for the millionaires and billionaires who fly in and out of the airport. Making our way into the basement of her restaurant, we sat and talked about how Mawa's Kitchen became successful and was doing really well, but then COVID hit. It was very hard for us here 
So I started with just one table for 20 people. Then I went to five tables, still community seating, still 20. And then uh, COVID hit. And they said to you, oh, we need to, uh, sep- we need to separate the table. And I was like, how am I supposed to separate? This is a community setting. Like six feet apart or something, yeah, six, like, 12 yeah, feet or whatever. I'm like, for real? So we had to make a decision fast. Uh, and uh, we decided either we close or we, we keep going. First of all, it was hell to get the PPP. Uh, oh, the, the funding to keep paying your employees. Yes, it was, it was a nightmare there to get an assistant. Yeah, it was very frustrating. So back up against the wall, she turned to something she always made for herself, granola, in an effort to keep her businesses and employees afloat. I always made granola for myself because, you know, we are big and gluten-free because I chose to be gluten-free because a lot of the things that people do, I can't eat it. I did the granola, and when I will have too much of it, I put it on a shelf to sell, and people will buy it, but it never really was something that was... I, I never said that I was born to be a granola queen. No, seriously. You can imagine, tell a chef that went to culinary school, oh, yeah, all I want to do is be a granola chef. Hell no. But, but, I mean, it seems to me that this is just another example of you saying, here's the problem, yes. here's what I can do, exactly. here's I'm going to fix this because I'm not going anywhere. Exactly. It's just look at opportunity instead of always, you know, feel sorry for yourself. COVID is here. Granola fly off the shelf. People want something that's stable, uh, uh, shelf stable. And I'm like, yo. We are going to make granola, and let's see how it goes. And um, that's what we did. So Because everyone was hoarding toilet paper and non-perishable items exactly and granola, right? It's a non-perishable item. And I, you know, the light bulb went, and I'm like, okay, we're doing granola. We're going to bag 300 at least a day. And we've been selling granola like crazy. I came up with different flavor. Grain-free Nola is still going strong, but with COVID calming down at least for now, Mawa remains really focused on her restaurant, and she tells me of the moment she got word that she was a semi-finalist for the James Beard Award. I was at the, bar- at the supermarket, and I scream, I see the market, and I'm like, ah! and then my friend is like, what, what's going on? Everybody's like, what's going on, Mawa? I'm like, I'm like, let me see, maybe she didn't see it right. So my husband, my, so my husband is at the, in the car. I'm like, honey, did you see this? He's like, yes. I'm like, make sure this is for real, okay? <laughs> so he called the PR company and he said, is that for real? And she's like, yes, it's for real. Oh, I scream in the car. I, I came here and I, I was bawling and crying. I did the ugly cry. Because this is essentially the Oscars for restaurateurs and, and chefs and people in the hospitality industry. Absolutely. Like I say, I never even dream or thought or, you know, I didn't even think that was possible because I am not doing anything fancy. And I always thought for to be a James Beard nominated, I don't even have, I didn't even think. I thought it was a white man club, first of all. Okay. Being a female 
chef in Aspen, Colorado, in not even downtown Aspen. I mean, I felt like I had everything against me from the get-go. So I never reached out to that level. Again, for me, it was a validation that keep doing what you're doing. It's great. And, and all the hard work that I put into my business from the get-go, even when I didn't make money and still not making money, um, that was the payoff. And I, because, you know, everybody who knows me, we're going to say, I always say there's no glory in being a chef. There isn't. Okay, you can be a celebrity chef. I'm not talking about those people. Okay? But someone who wake up in the morning and go actually in the kitchen and cook because he love it because you want to bring something different into the world, very passionate about food and where you come from, there's no glory. You're not going to be a millionaire. Nobody's going to recognize you. You need to do it for yourself because that's your calling. Not because you want to be the next uh, 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 top chef or whatever. And if you aspire to that, go ahead. But this is, this is, you do it for, for you, for your community. Because in my country, you know, food is such a holistic thing. It's not just stuffing your mouth and, you know, it's nourishes. It's, you know, like I'm here and James Beard is over there. Like the little now will get a James Beard Award nomination, not Mawa. So I never really, I never look at who nominated or who does. Not my life calling. Yeah. I'm doing what I want to do and that's the... The great the people coming to eat here and enjoying and saying, you know what, this was wonderful. That is such a oh, amazing thing. You feel like you did something. But this one is the cherry on a cake. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> having having this nomination and in an exit, I was so funny. I'm like, just being nominated, it's enough for me. But hey, I'm not saying that I don't want to be a finalist or win. Oh, it will be, I don't know. It'll be incredible. You know? It, yeah, that's, yeah, it'd be awesome. Chef Mawa McQueen owns Mawa's Kitchen as well as the Crepe Shack in Aspen, Colorado. She was a 2022 semifinalist for the James Beard Award Best Chef in the Mountain Region. We learned Wednesday that she did not make it to the finals, but we congratulate her nonetheless. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We are all broken. You may have heard me say that many times over the past couple of years, but it's true. We're all broken in our own ways and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, well, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And it's why we're coming back for a third season. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Back From Broken, with support from Live the Label. This week, we say goodbye to our friend and colleague, Joanne Allen. She retires Friday after seven years as the host of All Things Considered here on CPR. But before she signs off, she spoke with Corey Jones. 
For me, this means losing a colleague who's taught me a lot about radio, someone who calls it like she sees it 100% of the time, and someone I've gotten to know as a friend, too, while playing golf and going to art museums, stuff like that. And of course, I'm not the only one who will miss her presence in the newsroom. Joanne, you are inimitable to be emulated, but not imitated. You push everyone around you to be better. You are tough, kind, smart as a whip. You're curious and empathetic. You are strong-willed, passionate. You're quick, you're serious, but not too serious. On air, Joanne always sounds calm and collected, a steady presence, whether it's during breaking news or on election night as results pour in. She's also been known to have a little fun behind the scenes, too. Get out of there, Froggy. All right. <laughs> okay, Joanne, come on. you got to get into this. you got to be... Look at the words. Read the words. Be into it. Yes, Queen. Yes. <laughs> Joanne Allen, is that a side of you that you ever thought would make it to air? No. <laughs> and thank you for doing that, Corey. That's <laughs> just... Okay, I'm going to stop laughing. It's time to get serious. It's time to be serious, Joanne Allen. That's right. right. Collect yourself. We, we had to have a little fun there. So you were born and raised in Alabama. You worked for your high school newspaper. And I'm curious, what is it that got you interested in journalism? I have always enjoyed telling people something that they don't know. I can remember growing up in Mobile, I would come home and tell my mom everything that happened that day at school. And I didn't realize that I truly enjoyed doing that until I got into high school and understood what journalism is. It just took off from there. I just love telling stories. I love telling people information that is important and vital in their lives. And it's something that I've lived my entire life doing. You went to college in Wisconsin, and from there, your work has taken you all over, really. I mean, New York, Philadelphia, out west to San Diego, and and eventually to Denver. I feel like it takes a, a unique soul to move around the country like that. What is it about you that's taken you so many places? There's just something invigorating about meeting new people, talking to new people, seeing new things, just not standing still, learning and satisfying the soul. Yeah. What are the new things that struck you when you first came to Colorado? Mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Although I haven't spent a lot of time in the mountains, I have this great view of the mountains from my apartment. They're magical. Yeah. How about your time at CPR? What will you remember most about uh, working here? Oh, easily the people. Hmm. Um. When I heard all those voices and I recognized each and every one, um, it just brought back how much I felt so welcomed when I came here seven years ago and have continued to feel welcomed, not just by folks in the newsroom, but the entirety of CPR. The people are just so genuine at CPR, and I, I adore them. And that is what, more so than delivering the news, I'm kind of over <laughs> over that But I always had a great feeling walking into the station each and every day and just saying hello to so many different people and feeling wonderful that I chose to come to Denver. Before you sign off from CPR, I did want to share some thoughts from other colleagues on on what they'll remember and miss most about you. 
When I walked into the CPR newsroom, you scared the pants off me with the depth and the breadth of your knowledge. You're an icon at Colorado Public Radio, and I feel like I learned so much just from osmosis, from being around you. You have made CPR better in so many ways. It is hard to imagine what we would sound like without you. You know how to appreciate the simple things in life like... A sunset or a sunrise. You know so much about this profession, and it has inspired me to rise to the occasion more than once. I will miss, you know, rapping with you and the way that our younger colleagues look up to you and seek you out for good counsel. To be that kind of inspiration is something to aspire to. <laughs> I'm choked up. Thank you, everybody. That um, that's really cool and and really great. I'm I'm honored to have worked with so many of you, and am thrilled that you liked me as much as I like you. So, Joanne, from all of us here at CPR, and on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your work. We wish you a much deserved and happy retirement. That's CPR's Corey Jones speaking with Joanne Allen, who joins me now. Hey, Joanne, uh, first off, a big thank you and congratulations to you. Thank you, Nathan. I am really happy that you and I are getting a chance to talk because you were one of the first persons at CPR who welcomed me with open arms and also took me around on a little tour around the foothills. Do you remember that? I do remember that you also went up to Copper Mountain with me. We did some cool things back then. Yeah, we did. And so you gave me my bearings in a sense of where things were. And you you took me the Red Rocks. I mean, a number of things. You were just very, very sweet in terms of showing me a little bit of of the area that I had moved to. You know, I love Colorado. I love living here. And I I felt for once I could kind of be authoritative, I think, (laughs) a little bit about about where I live. Because, you know, I'm not from Colorado originally, but... Being here for so long now, it kind of feels like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I know how to make, a, make someone new feel happy and, and know where they are. Well, indeed. And I remember that trip as if it were yesterday. So it has been announced that I'll be taking over the Reigns hosting, all things considered, next Tuesday, uh, which is so exciting. It's, it's such a huge honor uh, to be filling the chair that you will be leaving. Is there any advice you have for me going into Tuesday? Oh, just be yourself. I mean, you got it all, dude. You, you've got the voice that is a very comforting voice, which I think is important in radio when you're conveying information that people need, especially if it's difficult information to take in. You know Colorado. You love Colorado. You are a consummate professional. You will lift all things considered As high as it can go, I have absolutely no doubt. Plus, you've got the kind of hair that can sell shampoo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you're making me going from crying to laughing. That's the Joanne Allen that I am going to miss. Well, it has been such an honor working with you. Don't be a stranger, okay? I mean, hopefully people will still be able to hear your beautiful, iconic voice in Colorado. Oh, absolutely. I will be around. I'm not like skedaddling (laughs) right after Friday. I'm not like going to be on a flight out or anything. I'll be in the Denver area for at least another year or so. Um, It's a very nice place to be. And so I am not in a hurry to leave. Now we're going to miss you, Joanne, and we wish you all the best in your retirement. Although I should point out that Joanne's not really slowing down. No, she'll still be podcasting. 
and writing her memoirs. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'll catch you in All Things Considered next week. This is CPR News and KRCC.